stand together and look at Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. Many different players in this text, and we're going to try to figure out their roles today and see who's going to follow the king and who isn't. Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophets. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd the people of Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was." And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Lord, I pray on behalf of many who sit here or watching now, Lord, we thank you for this time of year. What a blessing as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior to sing such songs, Lord. To be able to sing of Emmanuel. God now reigning with us, here with us now, Lord, on earth. And all the all the wonderful things that come from that. A sinless life. A perfect atonement. A substitute on our behalf. A peace that will endure for all of eternity between us and God. Lord, this is truly a beautiful time of year. We thank you for the reminder of that in song, Lord. And now we thank you for the reminder of it in word. May you strengthen as we look at your teaching. Lord, it does bring to mind that we are grateful people, that our sins have been forgiven. It is what makes this time of year so glorious. And Lord, we confess that on our own we would never follow the King. And yet you have shown us your glory. You have captured us. You have made us rejoice with joy exceedingly in what you have done. And we give you all praise and due. We thank you for your kindness, Lord. Your kindness is shown to us daily. You give us life and breath. You meet our needs, Lord. 
Though, Lord, we may not have everything we desire, we have what you have given us. And we pray, Lord, you would cause us to be content in all things, Lord. Content in health and finances. Content in family and marriage and children. Content in church and worship. Lord, help us find great contentment in you, Lord, and in your word. We thank you that we, as a church, can reflect you, Lord. We can show a relationship to the world that, that we have this deep abiding relationship with the Almighty God through Jesus Christ. We have His Spirit that lives within us and directs us and guides us and prods us on to worship, Lord. These are the blessings of a Christian. These are the blessings of the church. Lord, we thank You that we can gather in this free country we thank you that we're still allowed at this time to sing at the top of our, our lungs, Lord. We're reminded now as the, the church in China is being persecuted, Lord, and they quietly sing their songs in, in underground churches, Lord. We have freedom. May we not forfeit that, Lord. May we sing with all of our strength, and may we preach with all of our strength, and may we share the gospel to the day we are not allowed to do that publicly any longer. So give us, give us joy in Jesus today, Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross, Lord, and giving us this freedom, Lord. We do ask that you bless this word now in Jesus' name. Amen. This time of year, um, I find myself preaching on the Advent, of course, the Advent of Christ, His first Advent to the earth. Um, and it's always fun to get back into these texts. They take a lot of work, though. You should start digging through and asking all the questions. Uh, who's this Herod guy? And which Herod was he? And, and who are these magi? And why are they showing up? And all those type of questions. And, and yet, every time I get into these studies, I get so excited about learning more and more about the life of Christ. And I trust today you will as well. As we turn to our text today... Um, it's clear that Jesus is no longer in the manger. He's not in that stable or, or cave or wherever he was born. He's most likely in a house now. We would imagine now that he has been circumcised and Mary has gone through her purification. Luke chapter 2, uh, mid-20s in there, somewhere in those verses there show that. Um, they have gone to temple. They have offered sacrifices. Uh, it's interesting if you read Luke chapter 2, you realize that they did not offer a lamb. They offered turtle doves, uh, probably a sign of um, the, their lack of wealth. Uh, and so here they are. Now they, they, they come and they've, they've met Simeon and Anna and they've had that incredible experience with them. You know, Simeon saying, I can die now. I've seen my salvation. And Anna, this dear older woman serving in the temple was just so encouraged by Christ and spreading the news. But now they find themselves in a house, probably somewhere in Bethlehem. And uh, Bethlehem is, is uh, an interesting town. We talked about it a little bit on Wednesday night. It's a farming town. It's, it's known for its grain. It means house of bread. Isn't that interesting that Jesus later would be called the bread of life? You know, in John chapter 6, he would use that of himself. Um, and here they are now in this little town of Bethlehem as we sing that song. It was, a, it was a significant town. It was on the way between Jerusalem and Egypt. There was tons of travel through there, lots of commerce. 
And most people knew where Egypt was. Joshua captured this area in his campaign as he went into the promised land and led the nation in there. It was often called Ephrath. Um, and this is a place where Jacob uh, buried his wife Rachel. Um, so there's lots of history there. Ruth married Boaz here. This is where we would read the story of that beautiful relationship. What is also intriguing, and, and remember it's called the city of David. But this is also where David grazed his father's sheep. When the Lord first comes to him and Samuel comes out and he is anointed. And so Micah, as we looked at Wednesday 5-2, prophesies the birth of Christ in this little town of Bethlehem. Now, as we look at this story, there are several players in this. Uh, and I want to take a look at each one of them. And what we're looking for is who is going to follow the king? Who wants to see him? And it's interesting how God works down through here. Let's look at a couple of thoughts. Number one, wise men seek the king of kings. Wise men seek the king of kings. The Magi are some of the most interesting uh, figures in the incarnation story. Yet so little is talked about them in the Bible. We don't have a terrible amount of information. In fact, Matthew 2 is, in all reality, the only legitimate facts we have about these guys. Uh, the early church, the early church doesn't actually even talk about them much. It isn't until we get into the Middle Ages where they're given a number in our, in our songs and uh, you know, the three wise men, right? Um, it is about that time where they begin to give numbers and they actually even gave names. I chased this down a little bit. One was called Casper, another one, uh, Belthazar, and then Melchor. Um, so I don't know where these names came from, but somewhere in the Middle Ages they gave names to them. Um, they, they taught in the Middle Ages that they possibly, these were um, representing the three sons of Noah. I think that was a little bit of a stretch. And then, on top of all of that, somebody found three skulls, and then they for sure thought these were the wise men. So you can see where some of the legends grow out of, out of um, belief systems of the Middle Ages. However, in all reality, we're not told about names. We're not told about numbers. We don't know what they rode. We, you know, we always have them in our manger scenes on camels. I don't know. It doesn't tell us that. Um, and it doesn't tell us who accompanied with them. But verse 1 says they came from the east. Look at the text with me. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. So here we come to these magi, and they're from the east. Now in Jesus' day, the magi belonged to a priestly political group. Um, they came from what they were known as the Parthians. And they lived at this time east of Palestine. Now, Magi first appear in, in biblical history that we really think we can put our finger on them is in the day of Daniel. Now, you remember Daniel. Um, let me just read one verse to you. Daniel chapter 2, verse 27. Daniel answered before the king, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired. Remember, he had a dream. Nobody could interpret it. And Daniel comes. He says, neither the wise men conjurers, magicians, and that's actually where we get our word magi from, nor diviners are able to declare the king. But then Daniel goes on and says, but my God will reveal it to you. And this is where we first get introduced to 
uh, these magi group of people. Many historians link the magi to the line of Shem, so it means they would be um, in the they would be in that line where where Jews and certain Arab tribes come out of, and so they would follow that order as well. There are other historians I read that believe that they possibly were priests in. Uh, Ur of Chaldeans, where Abraham came from. Again, not a terrible bout of evidence to prove that. And then one other place I read, they um, linked them to Pharaoh. Uh, remember, he had magicians with him as well that could only do repeat some of the plagues that, the, that God brought, uh, then eventually dropped out. But no, none of these are for sure. We don't know any of these. We do know that they were around in the time of Christ. And they were skilled in astronomy and astrology and, and many other sciences. They had a sacrificial system. It was very pagan. It was very occultic. They sacrificed animals much like the Jewish system did. And they, they were into sorcery and dream interpretation, which is amazing because that goes back to the time of Daniel. So that's why we think they're linked to those guys back then. And as I said earlier, our English word magic or magicians come from the word magi. Now, um, they were known for several things. Um, they had a perpetual flame that burned that they said God, the God of heavens, gave them. And so this flame burned all the time. Um, they were uh, monotheistic, meaning they believed in one God. So they adapted easy to the monotheistic lifestyle and teachings and religions of the Persians and Babylonians and so forth when they would exalt one of their leaders as a God. And so they could come along and they could support that. Now, their studies of science and math and history and agriculture and the occult and the stars gave them great political strength. And people wanted them around. And the religious people would bring them and they would use them in, in a power struggle to see who would lead in that area. And we'll see that Herod did this as well. So you can see that these, these powerful wise men... Um, had great influence. So they had great influence on Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius and even the king in Esther's time, Azarus. Remember him? It's, it's him that actually speaks of them as well. So this would have been still in the captivity time of Israel. Esther 1.13 says, The king said to the wise men who, stood, who understood the times, for it was custom for the king to speak to all who knew the law and justice. And so they were around. In fact, they actually prophesied that Haman was going to lose his head to Mordecai. Uh, so they're around in this area. And this is the biblical history that we have so far. Now, but why are these magi in Jerusalem? And why are they looking for a Jewish king to worship him? And how did they even know about Jesus? How did they know about him? Well, most likely, we realize that the effects of Daniel probably were the key to this. The book of Daniel tells us that the Magi were some of the highest ranking officials during Daniel's faithful tenure in captivity. And when Daniel interpreted to Nebuchadnezzar the dream and he saved all their lives, it's quite possibly that a group of them began to listen to what Daniel has to say. And the book of Daniel is a phenomenal book of prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, the rule and reign of Christ. All of those are recorded in there. And so it is most likely that these wise men 
believed Daniel. In fact, Daniel was given charge over all of the wise men in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48. Now, not all of them liked them. You remember um, Daniel chapter 6, 120, and this is another group of, quote, wise men, 120 sartraps, remember those guys? They devised a plan to get Daniel thrown into the lion's den. So not all of them liked them, but by the grace of God, it seems that some of the magi listened to Daniel and were grateful for his interpretation and saving their lives. Now that's a great truth, that Daniel lives this life in captivity. Remember, Daniel goes through three regimes, right? He lives through Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, his son, and then into Darius as well. And Daniel's there in the kingdom prophesying of what God is going to do and his ministry in a very difficult place, a very difficult place where he spoke the truth had great ramifications even at the time of Christ, most likely. Now, fast forward and we get to these magi um, that in the present time, uh, most of them were very godless. Uh, uh, they played a huge role with, uh, with the Parthians and Herod in this intertestamental time. And, and so there's 400 years of silence. Remember, Malachi was the last prophet. He spoke and then God did not speak for 400 years. Well, all kinds of problems happened. And they were full of uh, just deception and political maneuvering. And they were called practitioners. And they used sorceries and the occult, to very satanic stuff. Many of the Jews hated them because they were pitted against. And uh, we'll see later that Herod pits them against each other. One of the Jewish philosophers from Alexandria called them vipers and scorpions. That's, that's who these guys are coming from, right? That's who they're hanging around. However, these magi in verse 1 who came from the east seem to be completely different. These magi are strongly influenced by Judaism. They're, they're, they're influenced by Daniel. And they appear to be God-fearing Gentiles who lived in the time of Christ. Now, isn't it amazing how God raises up people who don't have a heritage with him, meaning like uh, all of the decrees and laws and all the things that were given to Jews, God often raises up people outside that. And one of the things that uh, just struck me throughout the study this week is how God chose these magi to do what he did. They did not come from people who would worship the living God. They actually came from very pagan sources. So praise the Lord that he raises people up in, in unlikely places. Now, the text says that Magi arrived in Jerusalem. So this is the hub of spiritual worship of Judaism. And here they are. Notice verse 2. Their first question, they walk into town. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. It seems they're going around. Think, let's look at the text here. It seems they're going around town asking questions to everyone they can find. Where's this child king? Where's he at? Isn't it interesting? It's almost falling on deaf ears. And certainly his own people should have been waiting. In fact, there seems in history that there was an anticipation of the coming Messiah. And yet it takes Gentile kingmakers, these, these magi, to come and awaken the knowledge that he is possibly here. Now, here is the main point. God will always raise up his chosen to worship his king, his son. He always will do that. 
And even though no one else shows up, and we look at the birth of Christ, it's, it's lowly shepherds, probably the lowest job you could get on uh, uh, the, 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 the podium, right? It's the lowest one you can have. In fact, someone just said recently that uh, there was a law in Jerusalem that a shepherd could never give testimony in court. <laughs> he was not to be trusted. And that's who God makes himself known to. To them. And now these magi, and he's bringing these people around him. Because he wants his son worshipped. And these magi have seen a star, possibly the glory of God. And they're bound and determined to find this child. Second, we move into this godless king. Number two, godless kings seek the wages of death. Verse three, we see Herod show up on the scene now. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all of Jerusalem with him. Now, according to this verse, it doesn't take long for Herod to hear what's going on in his, in his providence, right? He's ruling over this providence, which includes Jerusalem and Bethlehem and many other towns. Now, these magi are asking questions. But Herod's completely different than them, right? The magi are wanting to worship. We're going to find out he's wanting to kill. What a difference in these two groups of people here, Herod versus these magi. Again, verse 3, Herod has used these Parthians and he's turned, he's turned them against the Jews and the Jews against them. He's had his hand in this. And so he's in a very difficult political situation here. But he, Herod, is going to try to manipulate it so that he wins. And he can pit these two groups against each other. It's possible that um, these magi uh, were part of a great conflict before Herod becomes king. Uh, the, the Parthians came in and they really fought over that land. And, and Herod, Herod was just a little worm and he would put them against each other uh, and cause all kinds of political problems. But now, now right in this present text, here are these people that he's caused problems with. They're not real friendly with each other and they're in town looking for a Jewish king. Now remember, Herod is king of the Jews. I'll show you that just here in a moment. Now, um, think about this for just a, a moment. These magi weren't probably just three guys riding on a couple of old ratty camels. This is probably a massive group of soldiers and servants. This is a, a, a group of men um, coming into town and everybody knows they're there. They're wealthy, they're powerful, they're political, and they're in Herod's town. <laughs> and Herod has some decisions to make here. How is he going to deal with this? There's this impressive appearance by this threat from the east. And, and now Herod, probably in his 70s, and, and very jealous and very wicked, has a decision to make. Am I going to get into a military conflict here? Or am I going to manipulate and deceive and try to use these men to win a battle? And certainly that's what he does. Doubtlessly, the Magi were from uh, Persia. They were, they were Parthians. And, and they were come to be a kingmaker. They're recognizing this king that has, has been born. And Herod is this wicked, self-centered king. And most likely uh, uh, doesn't like the uh, Parthians. And, and there's, there's a battle there. Remember, if, if you know your history during this intertestamal time, this group arose because they did not like Caesar Augustus. 
And they were looking for a king that would oppose him someday that they could politically get behind. Well, Herod was appointed by that king. And so there's a great conflict happening in this text. And and Herod's going to try to use it for his benefit. Notice in verse 3 that it says that Herod was troubled. See, he's troubled. He's got a situation on his hand. But the problem is when Herod's troubled, when a wicked man like Herod's troubled, guess who else is troubled? What's the verse say? All of Jerusalem is troubled. This guy causes problems. The people knew that this king, um, he, he was to be feared. He was foolish. There, there could be a battle in the middle of town here. But they don't know how this man is going to react. And here this entourage that's probably well armed and greatly supported is standing there. And Herod's response to this king this, this kingmakers that have come into his town has made people nervous. Look, this guy, he, he, he was not one who identified enemies. He just starts killing people. That's what he does. He's, he's a bitter, envy, jealous king. And he had tremendous fear of loss of power. And all that meant was the death of other people. Now, just a little background on him, because where did he come from? Well, like many, it's all about who you know. His father was appointed by uh, Julius Caesar. He was event- uh, originally made a perfect of Galilee. A perfect was an overseer of an area, not a king, but a high-ranking official, um, like a, maybe a GM of a baseball team. He, he, he watched over those things. He started and fought in a lot of the Jewish rebellions with the Parthians. Those guys fought against each other and he pitted them against each other. He ended up getting in trouble and having to flee out of there, but he went to Rome and in 40 BC, Octavius and um, Anthony, that's right, made him king. So now he returns back to the area there to now rule in that area. He drives out the Parthians so he's not have a good relationship with them. Then he starts to try to kiss up to the Jews. So he's not a Jew. He's actually an Edomite. He is the son of Esau. And but what he does throughout all this, he marries a Jewish, very rich Jewish woman who has a great inheritance. And she's an heir to a very wealthy family in the area. This gave him a little bit of acceptance with the Jews. But never forget when you study him that he is an Edomite. That takes us back to our study on Genesis 25 and 26, 27 that we're in on Wednesday nights. He despises the things of God. This is a powerful thing to begin to realize who he was. From the beginning, when Jacob and Esau were born, there was a great division between those two. And God's speaking of the coming wars and battles between the nations of those children. God himself says one he loves and one he hates. And the interesting thing about Herod is he lives out that hatred towards the Christ that was going to come. He's a terrible man, but he was very tricky in what he did. Early in his rule, what he did was he often find ways to make himself look good. So he would heavily tax people, then he would give some money back and they would like him. Or at least they would try to, try to like him. He melted down gold during a famine and and gave food to the poor, trying to help them. He rebuilds the temple in 19 B.C. and made a masterful temple for the Jews. 
He rebuilt ports and cities in their providence. He also created the great fortress Masada, which almost 80 years after this, uh, many Jews commit suicide up on that hill. But he was a wicked man. <laughs> He's a wicked man. I mean, let's listen to some of the things that we know about what he did. He was incredibly suspicious of everyone. And the tighter he held onto the grip of his power that he had, more people died. In fact, he, anything that was a potential threat, he would go after. So like he would do, he would always put his people in power, but then he would realize that maybe they weren't for him. So he puts his wife, brother, as a high priest over the Jews. He gets suspicious of him and drowns him. After that, he kills his wife and his two sons. Then he throws a banquet for all of the prominent leaders and family members, brings them into a banquet hall, shuts the banquet doors, has the soldiers kill everybody in there. Five days before his death, he kills his third son. Brian Sheely told me this week, he said it was always a saying in Rome that it was better to be a pig than a son of Herod. Because you're going to die. Just before his death... He issues an order that all the elite people of Jerusalem would be imprisoned. And upon his death, they were to be murdered. So there would be mourning in Jerusalem during his death. Certainly not mourning for him, but he wanted mourning in Jerusalem. These were wicked deeds. And there was only one thing that could exceed even more wicked than that. And it's found in verse 16. Just look down in your text. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. And he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all of its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he determined from the Magi. See, all of his questioning, all of what he's doing is for murder. He was a wicked man. In the middle of all of this, here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Herod sought death. That's what he was after. He did not seek the child who could save him from the wages of death. He seeks death. He hated what God loved, and he loved what God hated. And yet he is a major player in this text in the birth of Christ. And God is protecting him. God is protecting Christ through all of this uh, mess, this murderous king. This nation that doesn't even know their king is born, there's God in the middle of it. Another set of players, number three, that show up, and I entitled it this way, the self-righteous do not seek a savior. Notice in verse four, Herod wants to know where this child is, right? His goal is verse 16, kill him. Verse four in chapter two, he's going to gather the people who should know. Verse 4 says, gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, for the sake of time, because our Mark series is teaching us a lot about the religious leaders of the day, I don't want to get lost too much in this. But I, but I do want to just give you a couple of thoughts. Among the chief priests, there's one high priest. There's only supposed to be one. But what these kings of the day would do is they would put their own chief priest of the Jewish descent, they would put them in there, and when they didn't like them, they either drowned them in, in Herod's case, or they removed them and put another. So there was multiple high priests, and we see this during the life of Christ, that there's multiple high priests around. One is serving and performing the temple duties. Now, 
The scribes, on the other hand, are, they're the authority of the Jewish law. They're, they know the authority of both scriptural and their traditions. So they're the ones who are prestigious among the Jews. They're the scholars of the religion of Judaism. And they are strict legalists. These are the ones that establish all those traditions, both moral and civil law. But verse 4 says Herod calls all these guys together because he's trying to inquire the timing of this child. He wants to know how old the child is. So he can put him in that gap that he's going to kill. You see what he's up to? And here are the chief priests unknowing, but their lack of faith and belief in God is playing into his hand. Verse 5 and 6, look at their response to his question. This is amazing. They, that's the chief priests and probably the scribes speaking here, they say to him, in Bethlehem, this is where he's to be born, Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophets. Wow, they know the text, don't they? And you, Bethlehem, they quote Micah 5.2 here, land of Judah, and by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Isn't that amazing, this response? Even these religious leaders, self-serving, unbelieving, they're more political leaders than anything else, recognize that God's word clearly tells of the coming of the Messiah. And there's no doubt that he was to be born in Bethlehem and to rule Israel. They quote the text to Herod. And, and despite their correct interpretation of the scriptures, they don't accept them. In fact, his entire life, these men plague him. And in the end, have their hand in his death. Now, in the text, they acknowledge that Jesus was predicted to come and to rule his people. And there's even clear evidence that the Jews of Jesus' day knew the coming of the Messiah. And, and, and think about this. They knew he would be a real man living in a real town called Bethlehem. And even with the Magi there to worship him, they would ignore him, and they would not follow to go see if this was the king of kings. Verse 7, then Herod enters back into this. He secretly pulls the magi. Notice then Herod secretly called the magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. So just like Herod's wicked suspicion, right? He's the su suspicious of everyone. He now hatches a plan to get rid of this rival king. And he's always separating people. This is what he did. If he, there's too much work to do on the, the Parthians and the Jews. It would be that intertestinal period. But they, he was causing conflict after conflict between them. And here's what he does. He separates them again. He calls the Magi away from those who knew the, the, the Old Testament text. And he starts to inquire of them, when did you first see this star? I want to know exactly the time it appeared and I'm not interested about anything else. Because this would give him that good estimate of the age of the child. Notice verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search, go search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, not to anybody else, to me, so that I may come and worship him. Liar. 
He instructs these magi to go find this child, tell him where it's at. His deceptive plan is hatched. He wants to find the exact location, identify the exact child, because his jealousy and envy has taken him over, and he's such a liar, I want to worship him. He wants to kill him. As we know, God warns the magi of Herod's deception, and they depart a different way, and Herod's wicked envy cannot Stop the child king. Isn't that beautiful? God protects. He orders, though he orders the slaughter of so many children, it's a, it's a, difficult, it's a difficult text when you look at verse 16. Um, Bethlehem is also uh, a very difficult place for the nation of Israel. It's called um, Rachel's weeping point. It was there where the nations that came in, particularly Babylon, that came in and took the nation into captivity, it is that point where they began to separate people and send them into different parts of Babylon in captivity. And it's called Rachel's weeping point. And here, now many years later, they're weeping again as these children have been killed by this wicked, wicked king. This Edomite that has set his heart against the things of God. Now, number four, this, this Messiah shares God's glory. My point is here is I want to talk about the star just a little bit. And I hope no one gets mad, but I'm not sure it's actual a star. <laughs> I know it's in all of our songs that way, but I want you to think through with this. Just like the Magi, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about this star. And probably ever since the recording of the gospel accounts, Jesus' birth, people have speculated about what this star is. I read some funny reports. Some thought it was Jupiter. Um, and, and then others th- said this, that Jupiter and Saturn aligned, and the way they aligned, it looked like the Christian fish symbol. Okay, maybe, I, I don't know, I wasn't there. Um, others talked about a visible meteor or comet that was burning in the ancient sky. Um, and then there's a whole group of people that talk about this inner vision of the star of destiny in your own heart. Couldn't follow that line very well. I think it was supernatural. <laughs> I, I think it's something God just did. But here's what I believe. I believe it's a reflection of the glory of God. In fact, I believe it's a Shekinah glory that they're following. And let me see if I can prove that real quick to you. These are not hills to die on, but just something to think about the glory and person of God. Luke chapter 2, the glory of the Lord shone about them as the angels announced to the shepherds. That was an amazing thing. When you've been in the presence of God, apparently you reflect him. When Moses comes out of Mount Sinai, they made him wear a veil because they couldn't stand to look at his face. It was so bright from being in his presence. Can you imagine the brightness of that in a countryside that has, of course, no electricity and no external light? How bright that must have been when one angel begins to speak and then a heavenly host of angels that have come directly from the presence of God, what that illumination must have been like. And did the shepherds see that? I don't know. But it's something to think about because this was a blaze of glory. And we know this because God's glory is called the Shekinah, right? It's a visible light. It's seen throughout the Old Testament. The nation followed it by night in the wilderness, Exodus 13, 21 tells us. It protected them from the Egyptians. It held them. They could not get past this blaze of glory of God in Exodus chapter 14. 
It rested on Mount Sinai, and the Bible says this in Exodus 24, 17. It was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. We'll talk about a bright star. This was bright. Exodus 34, 30, Moses returns to the Ten Commandments, and his face shone. I already talked about that. Exodus chapter 40, at the very end, last chapter, last, last set of verses, verse 34, I think, and on there, the Shekinah glory fills the temple, and they can't even get near it. The glory of God was on earth. Go a little bit into the New Testament, Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are there in Matthew 17. The Bible says Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his garments were as white lights. It's powerful. It's a powerful reflection of the person of God, right? Acts chapter 9, Paul is on the Damascus Road. He sees a light from heaven. Later in his testimony before Agrippa in Acts 26, he says he sees a light brighter than the sun. This is the glory of God. Revelations chapter 1, John from the island of Patmos says that he saw Christ's face and it was shining like the, the full strength of the sun. Revelations chapter 21 verse 23 says we will have no need for light because the glory of God will illuminate it and the lamb is the lamp. Hmm. Could that star be the glory of God? Could that have been what they followed? We first see these words used in Numbers chapter 24 verse 17. Speaking of the Messiah to come, it says, A star shall come forth from Jacob. All the way to the end of the Bible, Revelations 22, 16, that Jesus is the bright morning star. That's one of his names. And, and he is glorious in our heart. He is glorious to us because he came to earth and died in our place. But he is also glorious in an illuminating way as well. Everything about him, when you study what the Bible has to say, is he is illuminated. I know some of the uh, religious drawings put little glowing hails, hail above him. I think there's something glowing over the house. And it's drawing people, particularly these magi. So I believe the glory of the Lord led those magi on that fateful night to Jerusalem. And Christ's glory was shining like a star in that dark night. It was the glory that he and his father shared before the world began. He prays that prayer in John chapter 17, verse 3. And it was a brilliant manifestation of the sign of the Son of Man was on earth. And so here the Shekinah glory of God was once again shining over Bethlehem as it did so many years before. Now it's back. God's among men. And it's clear the Magi weren't following a star like we would think. I mean, think about following a star. How, how do you follow a star? And the reason I think this is because in verse 2, they stop in Bethlehem to acquire about where Jesus was born. So, so maybe this star appeared at his birth and the announcement of his birth and they, that got them moving, got them thinking about what Daniel had taught this group that were probably Gentiles followers of God in some way. And they come and say, well, if we've seen his star in the east, if there's any place where a king should be, would be Jerusalem. So they end up there. <laughs> And, and it appears they're looking for knowledge. Where is he? Where is he? They're asking. And only after hearing the prophecy 
um, of his birth in Bethlehem does the star reappear and move them to the exact place where he was born. Look at verse 9 with me. After hearing the king and in hearing the prophecy, we'd link that verse back to 5 and 6 as well, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east, that's previous, past tense there, now, now present tense, went on before them until he came, it came and stood over the place where the child was born. So the glory of God is leading them. It's leading them to the God-man Jesus Christ. And, and, and let me just stop and make a point of application as a believer here. When people get saved, I often tell people this, they've seen the glory of God. What, what makes a person so joyful when they come to know Jesus Christ? They've seen God. They've seen God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've realized they've come face to face with God. And God alone was the only one who could ordain the forgiveness of their sins. And so Paul writes it like this, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, listen to this, is the one who has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is glorious to us. And see, this all makes sense to me. He's the glorious one. He's the one who can bring peace to the earth that, that man couldn't. He's the one who can judge the Herods rightly and forgive the uh, uh, Magi that believes in Jesus Christ. He's the one that can do all of that. And so it must be the glory of God that's leading them on. Number five here, the Savior provokes overwhelming worship. This is uh, this is some fun text here. Look at verse 9. After hearing the king, they went away and they followed the star they had seen in the east. They went and they went and they came and it stood over the place where Christ was. Isn't that amazing? And then verse 10. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with, with great joy. And so God protects the magi. They get through wicked Herod's scheme. And God's protecting the child from Herod because he's going to go on and be our substitute. He's going to be the king of kings and every knee will bow. So God's protecting the seed that was spoke of in the garden and is now on the earth. And verse 9 tells us that, that there really is one. There's only one um, that could be preserved to do all that. And they come and they, the glory of the Lord is pointing out this, this child. Herod no longer has... Um, the power over death. God is taking that away from him. He needs the righteous king, but he rejects him. And the religious leaders, they're rejecting Jesus because they want a military political power. But here these magi press on. And so whatever the star was, probably the glory of God, it stood directly over the house. And verse 10 just is an amazing expression of what happens to them. The magi are overwhelmed that the star has led them to the direct path of the Holy Child. This is what happens. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The, the phrase in the Greek has all these adjectives and adverbs expressing the, the main verb rejoice there. And, and what's fascinating about that word is that that verb is as passive, meaning they were overwhelmed with God-given joy. That's why we sing so much at, at Christmas, just not because we love this time of year and trees and lights and all that stuff. 
it is amazing that God would send his son. <laughs> and there's so much joy that comes out of you when we think about this time of life. And so here are these magi, they're there. Their, their joy is absolutely overcoming them. They now see what God has promised. These are men that, that were taught the occult, now rejoicing over Christ. When I, I, I sat and thought about this. These men, if they, were, if they were any part of the Parthians and all the Magi of the past, these were godless, pagan people. And now, God has illuminated them to see the glory of Christ. Doesn't that give you hope? Who do you know that, that mocks God? Who doesn't have anything to do with him? He changes the hearts of the wisest men, quote, the wisest men of the world. This is what he does. He leads poor, lowly shepherds to his foot as well. Notice verse 11, the beginning of verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell to the ground and worshipped him. The search is over. I don't know how far these guys came, but they're not riding rapid transit or flying, you know, they're probably walking or riding on some beast of burden. Um, you're maybe covering 20, maybe on a good day, 25 miles at a time. You're, you're, you're working your way through a very politically intense area. You have a king who's a maniac. <laughs> I mean, think about all of the circumstances, and now they're here. Their search is over. They found the king. It's Jesus, our Emmanuel, it's God among men, a Savior's born, and the Magi are captured by the glory of Christ, and they respond in a proper way by falling to the ground and worshiping him. This is what you and I do when we see all Jesus. You may have not fallen on the ground, but I tell you, your heart collapsed when you realized you were a sinner and Jesus was your only hope. That's, you know you're saved. If you're still here today and you go, well, yeah, Jesus is good, it's something I want to have with me, you haven't seen his glory. When you see the glory of Jesus, you repent. When you know who he is, that he is God, creator, sustainer of all things, he is your substitute, you fall before him. There isn't kind of repentance. You don't come around and say, well, yeah, I'm pretty sorry for some things I did. You know your sins take you to hell. You know you, need, you deserve his judgment. See, that's the difference of seeing the glory of Christ and just knowing some Christmas truths about Jesus. There's a big difference. These men, they get in front of Christ and they hit the deck and they worship him. They're overwhelmed with him. The promised passed down from the garden. <laughs> I mean, this, this is... This is biblical history, all coming to life in front of them. The promise that there would be one who could crush the head of the serpent, who could beat sin, Satan, and death is all right there now in the, in the arms of a human mother. It's all being fulfilled. And, and, and notice the text, look at this. They fell down to the ground and worshipped him. I want to point this out. 
Doubtlessly, they were excited and thrilled to meet Joseph and Mary, but they did not worship Mary. They worshiped Jesus. There's a distinct difference. And it's so important to make sure we understand that. Mary was a, a wonderful woman who loved God, and God, she found favor with God, and we love her magnificent, her prayer, all the things that we see in Mary's life mostly. But she was holding her Savior. She's holding the King of Kings. And these magi, whatever they knew or didn't know, are motivated to worship that son, that child, that Savior, not the parents. And they bow before him and worship. Please don't miss that point. Verse 11b, the last part of it, they break out the gifts. Isn't that amazing? This family probably has nothing. Think Think about this. There's no room in the inn for them. Jewish people do not let you stay somewhere without family. It is very clear that things were not good in the family. Pregnant wife, Still in the patrol, God told you this. <laughs> Ooh. They probably don't have much. But here comes God bringing unsuspecting Gentile worshipers to worship the king, and they're not coming empty handed. Then they opened their treasures, the verse says. They presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there's not enough time to go into all these things, but gold, certainly the most precious metal on earth. It speaks of his royalty. And, and I, you know, you could imagine human Joseph looking at that going, I was wondering how we were going to make it. <laughs> um, frankincense, this costly incense that put out an incredibly beautiful aroma used in magnificent uh, occasions, connected to deity, the worship of deity throughout biblical history. And then myrrh, maybe a, a little less expensive than frankincense, but a perfume that represents humanity and probably would have been used in, in the death of a king. And maybe even pointing towards his death, burial, and resurrection. Gifts for a king by Gentiles. <laughs> See, the Bible wants us to know that Though people who claim to know God, who maybe are raised with the Bible or in church, often aren't always the people who follow Him. There's a deception that comes along with that. And here God brings people outside of the normal realm to be worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in it, and in it, He provides for this family. The Bible doesn't tell us uh, what they did with these gifts, but doubtlessly it helped them. You know, as the story goes on, they have to flee um, Herod, and, and they, have to, they have to run to Egypt. Uh, that's a costly trip with a mama and a, and a little baby, and, and what are you going to do for work and food? And, and, and then they come back, and they settle back in Galilee and Nazareth, and, he, and maybe there Joseph's be able to launch a, a business of some sort that Jesus is raised in. Doubtlessly, these things help this little family. And then finally in verse 12, this is an important aspect. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Isn't it interesting? God's not speaking to Herod. God's not speaking to the religious elite, but he's speaking to these Magi. These wise men who believed 
believe the prophets. Believe that a king was coming. And he wasn't just any king. He was the king of kings. So let me end this way. Are you caught up in the Christmas season? I said this Wednesday. Are you looking for the Christmas spirit? Whatever that is. Well, that'll come and go. That's something that you feel fuzzy and warm because the family's coming over or it's fun to get a gift or give a gift. That just comes and goes because January 2nd, we're back into normal life and paying bills and all the difficulties of medical and all those other things. When we talk about following the king, we talk about bending our knee to him in every season. All the time. He's the king of kings. He's he's the the God-man who came to earth to die for us. So whether it's Christmas, Easter, 4th of July, doesn't matter. (laughs) He's our central worship, isn't he? He's, He's everything to us. And that's who Christians are. And so when we study these passages, as beautiful as they are, they remind us that Jesus Christ came to die. And, and as we'll look at next week, we're going to have two great services in the morning and evening. We're going to look at the cradle to the cross. You can't, you got to have both. You got to have both. The world holds on to the first one. The world around the world, this is the greatest holiday that's, that's universally um, uh, observed. But you can't have the cradle without the cross. So we praise the Lord for that. Father, thank you for this little short history lesson, biblical truth of history of what happened on that day, Lord. These wise men knew by probably your prophets that there was a king coming. And he wasn't just any king. He was king of the Jews. And he was be our king someday. And and they rode through difficult circumstances and through political challenges and and, in a and a wicked king who sought to kill them, if he could, Lord. And yet they were driven there by uh, an understanding of a star, seeing possibly, Lord, your glory, and driven to go push towards that. And there, as they came to the end of that, that trip, there was the child. And they worshipped the child. They worshipped the king. They worshipped the Messiah, They worship the one who would grow in wisdom and stature, who would live a sinless life and die for their sins and for ours. And so, Lord, we pray that this Christmas season we would be even more joyful uh, recipients of such a great gift that Jesus Christ would come for us. Lord, thank you for this message. Lord, may we, um, those that are in this room who are believers, May we be free with our speech about what we believe about Jesus Christ, Lord. Give us opportunities to proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.